that you are here. Uh, look at your notes, and we'll jump into this um, really, really quick. We're in a series called The Sweet Life, and if you haven't been here, just a quick bridge. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit from the book of Galatians, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, mercy, gentleness, self-control. Last week, I did self-control Save this message, which winds up our series uh, on the sweet life, on gentleness. I want to ask you a question real quick. When is the last time you ever heard a message on gentleness? Let's look around. So clearly in the Bible, I'm going to show you so many scriptures that tell us why it's beneficial, why believers should be developing it in their lives, how it pays off for us. And yet, I'll be honest with you, I can't remember the last time... I ever taught on it, and I know for sure I can't remember anybody else um, that, that I know of that's ever taught on it where I heard a message on it. And I think when I was writing the message, uh, looking at self-control, I had so much that I wanted to say on that issue, seeing it as a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But when I thought about gentleness, uh, honestly, I wasn't sure which way I was going to go on it, so I kind of mixed up the order, saved it for last and then God being as good as God is, man, he had something that was so special that, um, that he wanted to share. And I think it's a great way for us to end up our series. So before I just jump right in to, um, to trying to teach what the Bible says about it, I thought I needed to tell you a story about what real gentleness is. And it's in your notes, and I'll just say it real quickly right now because I think it's sort of a kind of a, a, a formulaic point that you need to understand um, gentleness is probably the most misunderstood word in the Bible. If you were to ask the average person in our society what it means, people would come up with things like um, weak, soft, easy to push around, someone without a backbone, someone that may not be able to stand up for what they believe in or is afraid to do so. And meekness really, gosh, it's the opposite of all of those things. Meekness really, in a nutshell, so that you get the idea, meekness is a person who is so strong that they can keep their strength under control. And that is a difficult thing to do. And I just want to ask you, uh, the atmosphere that we live in today, let's just look at politics real quick. How many, how many people do you see that have power that know how to keep it under control? Yeah, me, yeah you guys are already excited, so let me ask over here. I mean, even in politics, so, and, and, and I don't mean, I'm not talking our president. I'm not, I'm not, I, I, I'm, I'm talking just, just the whole atmosphere of politics right now. How many people do you see that have power, but they know how to keep it under control? It just seems like it's just, it's the opposite of that. And the Bible's so specific on why it's a benefit. And in, in particular, I want to point it out one more time. 
The sweet life, man, is when you have all of the gifts of the Spirit operating in your life because they're so beneficial, they produce a sweet life for you. And gentleness is part of the sweet life. So I want to talk about that today. It really is not a long message, I hope. I'll do as quick as I can on this. I said that last night and went much longer than I intended. So let me, let me jump in. Um, I've told my story in bits and pieces over the years. And uh, if you've been in this church for a long period of time, you've heard some of it. If not, it'll be new to you. But it ties into something in particular. So let me try to do, um, do what this was like and how I... How I have an example of gentleness, which is just really, it's power under control that I can sort of show you. Um, I, I, uh, I grew up in the South, Louisiana, and uh, my father abandoned our family when I was three and my brother was two. There's a lot of reasons for that, and I'm not here to knock on him. He's not even alive, so it would be an unfair thing to do, but here's just simply the scenario. Um, my mother uh, got pregnant out of wedlock, and my father did the right thing. And at an early age, when they were 18 and 19 years old, they got married. And my dad uh, was very unprepared for that for a lot of reasons. And when the pressure rose up, and how many of you know uh, marriage brings pressure? And when you're immature and you don't have all the tools for it, it just makes it even worse. And I'm not saying that this is right. It's not, uh, it, it's not that. But uh, his way of dealing with it was just simply to leave. And when I say leave, they didn't divorce. We came home one day, and he had packed up everything, taken everything, disappeared. And nobody could find him. For a lot of years, my mom thought that he was dead can you imagine the rejection that she faced as a young bride and that two little boys faced growing up without a father? I met him years later in my 30s and tried to ask him about that, and the only answer I could really get from him was that I was immature. Do you know how unsatisfying that answer is? Uh, you know, my, my life, it's not a, hey, look at me, but it's just, it's just a thought. I also married at 19, and... This coming December will be 34 years. So there's a, um, there's, yeah, yeah. You know, we don't have to repeat the patterns that someone else did. The power of the gospel doesn't change the past, it alters the future. I love that right there. My mom met, um, met a man a couple of years later. His name was John Leach. And uh, he, he was incredible. He pulled our family out of a lifestyle of poverty. He gave us opportunity that we would have never had. He loved us so much that uh, he adopted me and my brother and gave us his last name, changed my first name too. And I took his name and bear it today as John Vincent Leach III. What an honor that is. But when I was 11 years old, he was killed by a drunk driver in a tragic accident. And so a short time, man, I lost two fathers, one that I didn't know and one that I love very much. And if you can think about um, what, a, what, a, um, what an incredibly important time it is 
for a child at those two places. You know, I, it's just my belief. It may not be true. You could disagree with it. You're free to. I just think, you know, like, like when you have a baby, it seems like a mom has a lot more impact on the life of an infant. But dude, once a little boy turns two and three, he needs his dad desperately. I can even remember in my mind wanting to be like him, wanting to play catch with him, wanting to just the things that I wanted to be around my dad. He was gone. This other man comes into our life, and he fulfilled all of those things in such a, such a powerful, wonderful way. But at 11, he was killed tragically. Um, and it's so easy, what I'm about to say, it's so easy then to point a finger at my mother and think, God, how could she do something like that? But, you know, unless you've walked in the shoes of another person... Unless you've been in a place where, God, you've lost two husbands, um, your future suddenly is all, when you think it's finally going to work out, your future suddenly is just completely up in the air. Uh, It was so devastating for my mom and for us as a family that my mom did what a lot of people do without Christ. She began to medicate through alcohol, which led to some not great decisions. And within a four-month time period of my father being dead, she had met a man who was married with children, and they decided to cohabitate together. He left his children and came and lived with us. And I remember being so angry about that. So so, uh, at 11, it's hard to, uh, to put together the things you can put together when you're 21. Do you agree? And I just carried this, this, this anger around in me that, uh, I didn't even know where it came from. Now I can point at it, and I know. But at the time, I couldn't, and it was just so ugly. And I was a really good kid up until about this time right here. And this anger grew in my heart so... I mean, you know, anger doesn't have to be something that happens to you at 35. It can happen to you at 10 years old. I became a very angry kid. And that anger began to manifest in a rebellion, a a smart mouth. Um, Literally, at 11 and 12 years old, I skipped school. I did everything I could to try to express this anger that I felt about a dad that had abandoned us and a dad that was taken away from us and a man that was in our lives that I did not like. And by the way, um, you know, like spirits attract each other. And so as she was drinking... She met a man who liked to drink, too. And I've told the story. uh, He could be a very nice guy when he didn't drink, but when he drank, he was mean. And he was mean with his fists, and he was mean with his words. His way of handling life, too, was this weird thing that uh, he would go for six or eight months, and everything would seem to be okay. And then all of a sudden, he would fall off the wagon, and he would just disappear. We'd come home, and all of our stuff... Um, was gone. My mom was left with the responsibility of um, three little boys and really like our whole future is up in the air. And I lived that way for many years of my life. Here's, I never went to the same school more than one year in a row all the way up through being a senior in high school. Do you imagine what that's like to change schools every year? It was just like anger compounded upon anger, compounded upon anger. It was just a really weird, weird time. Probably the happiest time of my life when I was a teenager was around the age of 15. 
we were living in San Diego, California. Our lives were the steadiest they had been, and it was over a two-year time period. And that doesn't seem like a long time, but when everything else had changed every six months, two years seemed like an oasis in the desert. Man, I love that time. I was in junior high, uh, really liked my school, really had a good group of friends, and we came home one day, and he was gone, and his stuff was gone, and my mom had to make some really hard decisions. We're originally from New Orleans, that area in the south. And so my mom had to pick up and move my family once again all the way back to a little town called Slidell, Louisiana, for those who might know where it is. It's on the north side of Lake Pontchartrain. And we moved my ninth grade year back to the south into a school that I didn't know anybody. And I was so angry. And I began to manifest this anger in my language and in my actions I tried to be as rebellious as I knew how. Here's the problem. A lot of people saw the surface, but no one ever asked, why is he like that? Sometimes it's really hard to look beyond the outside to understand what's going on on the inside of a person. We moved in with my aunt and uncle because we didn't have a way to make it any other way. And my aunt and uncle were believers. Sometimes we think about the plan of God, and here's how we see it. It's really clean. And A takes us to B that takes us to C. But sometimes the only way that God can get our attention... How about this? God does some of his best work in darkest times. Do you agree with that? You know, the Old Testament says what the devil means for evil, God can use for good. I always like to think... I know this is going to sound really bad. God's not a poker player, but if he was... He could win with a pair of twos. <laughs> God just wins. That's what he does. My aunt and uncle um, took us in, in the middle of all of this. And it wasn't just what had happened in the last couple months. It, what it, it's what had led up for the last 15 years. And they opened up their house to us. And they had children. And they just made room for us. And uh, it was such a kind thing. Uh, my uncle's name is John. Brilliant man. Love my uncle. Um, my uncle had asked us to go to church with them. And it was a small Pentecostal church in a little town called Slidell, Louisiana. And they had a youth camp that was going on. And I wanted to meet kids. I was really lonely. And so I agreed to go to this youth camp. And at this youth camp, I was hearing about Jesus and who Jesus was and what Jesus could do. And, you know, here's what I believe. I know for some people, when they come to a salvation experience in God, it happens one time and it's dramatic and it's just really powerful. For me, it worked in stages. Okay. Anybody else have it happen that way to you? Yeah. There, were, there were times where I would come into this knowledge and I got to that place but God couldn't do everything he needed to do right then. It took the next step, and it took the next step. So it was at this camp they were talking about Jesus. And I remember when they said, who needs Jesus? I remember raising my hand for the very first time. I need Jesus in my life. But it didn't change everything that I had gone through. Does that make sense? It was a lot of work that needed to be done. Okay, I'm really going someplace with the story. Forgive me for dragging it out. But it sets it up. That night, <clears throat> what they would do, they would separate the boys and the girls. So the girls would go to one side of the camp, and the boys would go to the other. 
And I was 15 years old, and my job was to figure out how to sneak out to find where the girls were <laughs> at nighttime. I know nobody else has ever, ever experienced that or thought that way or did those things. But I got caught. And so the camp counselor, my uncle had gone to volunteer to help out, but the camp counselor had caught me. The camp counselor pulled me, and the camp counselor said, hey, man, if you do that again, we're going to send you home. And this smart-alecky, rebellious, hurtful kid that I was, instead of humbly saying, I'm sorry and I won't do it again, here's what I said. I don't give a rip. Send me home. Tough guy. And the guy called my bluff. Okay, go home. My uncle was so disappointed. And my uncle said, I'll drive you home. And it's about 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning when this has happened. It took us five minutes from the church to his house, but my uncle decided to take one hour to drive me home. <laughs> he drove as slow as he could. He had a great big Lincoln, as slow as he could, back and forth, taking every street through the small town of Slidell. I saw everything there was to see in Slidell. <laughs> And this is what my uncle kept saying, man. He, he had this strength in him that was unbelievable. Because he kept telling me, it's not too late to change your mind. And he'd drive down this street. It's not too late to change your mind. And of course, I'm tough. And I kept telling him, oh, I don't care. Just take me home. Here's what I'm doing tomorrow, man. I'm sleeping in. I'm going to go hang out with all of my friends who are not at this camp. I'm going to go do all the fun things. I'm going to ride my bike. I'm going to, I just told him all the things I was going to do. And my uncle, without losing his temper, without yelling at me, without condemning me, without doing anything, he just simply said, no, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to get up in the morning and cut the grass. He said, in fact, I've got a list of chores for you. If you're not going to be at this camp, you're going to work because you live at my house for free. And every time I would say to him, I'm going to do this, he, in the very kindest of terms, would just say to me simply, no, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to wash my car. He had this list for me that kept growing and growing, and we're driving slower and slower. And every time he would tell me what you're going to he would just say this to me, it's not too late for you to change your mind. It's not too late for you to change your mind. We got within two or three minutes of the house, and I finally, finally said to my uncle, if it's not too late for me to change my mind, please take me back. Please let me go back. And my uncle, I can still see his face, looked at me and he said, I want you to learn that when it comes to Jesus, it's never too late to change your mind, John. It's never too late to change your mind. I went back to that camp, had the most remarkable experience. It wasn't the experience that changed my life. But some of you know, you've heard me say this, when I was 15 years old, I heard the Lord speak to me. Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon you because he's anointed you to preach good news, to set at liberty the captive, to bind up the brokenhearted, to be the man that I've called you to be. It was out of that camp that I came home and heard that scripture. My uncle demonstrated in my mind what it really means to be a person who is gentle in Jesus. 
He was like a rock, like a steel rod on the inside who could not bend, who would not break, and knew what was right and wrong. But his way of doing it was so gentle that he didn't yell, scream, force, condemn, or push me down. Somehow he was able to lift me up and make me want to have what he wanted. You ever had someone in that, in your life like that that could just, could just do that? I like to think that when I preach, on the inside of me is this steel thing that knows truth and won't compromise it. But on the outside, I love to love people while I'm teaching. I think it's a demonstration of what biblical gentleness is. The sweet life, look at me one more time, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, mercy, say it with me, gentleness, and self-control, man. You showed up this morning because you want to live the sweet life, don't you? And I think the one thing that we never consider, learning to be gentle like Jesus. So strong, but this way about you that allows other people to want what you have. How about this? If the church could learn true biblical gentleness today, perhaps we could show people, here's the truth, and here's why it's so good to walk in it. And you know what we've learned to do? We've learned to be steel without gentleness. When it comes to this issue... I wrote in my notes, not in yours. I want to make a confession to you. It's important for me to say this. I want to talk to you real quickly. It's not really the crux of the message, but it's two things that I need you to hear from me. I want to talk about my greatest failure and my greatest success as pastor. Okay for me to do that? It won't take too long. I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm a human, just like you. Um, some of us make more than others. My lot in life is to make mine publicly in front of thousands of people on an ongoing basis. We think people don't see things, but people see. They understand. And I'm a man, and I am not perfect, and while I walk on this earth, I make mistakes. Uh, it's not my heart. It's not what I want to do, and I am trying more than ever to follow Jesus. But I do have failures, and my greatest failure was when I was a young pastor at this church. I didn't get gentleness. My idea of leadership was that a strong leader was a person who just simply jumped on things. It was my way or the highway. This is the way it has to be. This is what a leader does. I took a lesson more from what natural leadership is rather than spiritual leadership. So early on, I treated people. I was a bully. Some of the staff that worked for me, I simply was a bully to them. Some of the people that were in my church... When it came to certain things and being tolerant of certain things or uh, learning to deal with certain things, I just simply was a bully. And you know what it did? I hurt a lot of people early on in my ministry. The first three years here, I was a klutz. I did things that if I could go back in time, let me ask you, are there things in life if you could go back in time you'd do different? Hard to recognize those things sometimes in your 30s, but boy, your 50s have this advantage. You can look backwards. <laughs> if 
I could go back and change the way that I did some of the things I did with staff. If I could go back and change the way that I did some things with people. If I could go back and take back words that I said or attitudes that I had or laws that I put in effect. I would change them in a second. Can I tell you my greatest success, though, as pastor of this church? My greatest success, and look at this. If you want to know if God is real and alive, I've got a proof for you that is undeniable in any other way. Any of you that have gone here for any length of time, the one thing that I know that I know that God changed in my life is he made me a gentle leader. While I may be strong when I preach... Underneath me is a heart that is so gentle. I'm without compromise when it comes to truth, but I can love people in a way that allows them the time to find the truth too. And that's what a good leader is, man. That's what it means to be able to walk out truth. If you want a definition for the term Gentleness. I'll give it to you. You might want to write it down. In my mind, when the Bible talks about gentleness, this is what gentleness is. Gentleness is power under control. Gentleness is not passivity. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is not milk toast. Gentleness is not someone that can be pushed around. Gentleness is not someone who doesn't have courage. Gentleness is not someone without a backbone. Do you want to know what gentleness is? Gentleness is when you have authority and power and could stand up and destroy something, but you choose to keep it under control because you realize winning the person is more important than dominating the person. I just want to talk to you about gentleness. Something that I've learned over the years, and I brought this up, uh, sometimes it makes me sound old. Sometimes I realize maybe, maybe I should not say things like this, but um, you know, it's my 32nd year of being a pastor. So I can't believe that much time has gone by. But do you know, we do a lot of um, post-marriage counseling. We do premarital for people about to get married, but really they don't hear a word that you say. It's just, it's just they just don't. They, they don't. Most of them are thinking about sex. That's where, that's where they're just like. <laughs> and they might hear a thing or two. You know where we're most successful? We're most successful in postmarital counseling. And it's funny because people come back in six months, a year, year and a half. And they'll be like, man, we just don't know how to do these things. We were never taught these things. Which, then I have to be gentle. Because I'm like, I spent four weeks with you teaching you these things. <laughs> do, you know, um, do you know the hardest thing I have to deal with? And every pastor will tell you the same thing. The hardest thing we have to deal with in postmarital counseling is this. The Bible cautions husbands to be gentle with their wives for this reason. When you are not gentle with your wife, you close her heart off because she can't survive if you don't understand power under control. 
Can we say it over here? See, I know when I say this, I guess I've just done it long enough to know that some people are sitting this right now. And the last thing you want to hear is me say this in front of your spouse. Dude, I didn't come to hurt you or embarrass you. My name's John. I'm your pastor. Love you like crazy. We'll be here to clean up any mess that I make. And I want you to make it in your marriage. But do you know that the hardest thing we deal with is when a wife's heart has been closed to her husband and trying to convince her to open it up again to trust. And unless the man gets real gentleness, no woman can do it because she can't survive unless the man gets gentleness. Did you just hear what I said? And where most men are today, they think to be a strong leader is to tell my wife, here's the way it's going to be. Here's how you're going to spend money. Here's how you're going to operate with our kids. Here's what our house needs to look like. Respect, 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 respect. Dude, you're crushing her and you don't even realize it. And then you come to me and you tell me, get her to open her heart up. You know what I really need to teach you to do? Be like Jesus. You okay? I think people have a love-hate relationship with my preaching. (laughs) Gentleness is just so power under control. It's not weakness. It's not powerless. It's not passivity. Gentleness is power under control. You got a pen or a pencil? You want to take online notes to fill in the blanks? That's great. You want to just listen to what I have to say? I'll do this as quickly as possible. I'm going to use the life of Moses. Moses is one of those people who... um, Here's one of the things the Bible says about Moses. As long as the earth exists, people will know who Moses is. 3,000 years later, we're still talking about Moses. Moses was a powerful leader. Moses led 2,000 people through the... I'm sorry... Two million people through the desert. Can you imagine leading two million people? Can you imagine what kind of a leader it takes to lead two million people? Unbelievable. If you took it just on the example of how hard it is to lead your family. It's the old cliche, man. My family's like leading cats. They all just like, I'm like, okay, we get out of the car. Here's what we're doing. They're gone. And then as a leader, man, you know, I'm out walking and you turn around and nobody's following you. By the way, that's not leadership. That's just taking a walk is what that is. So turn around, go back and find them, figure out what's going on. Okay, it's impossible for me to read all there is to read about Moses. We, we just don't have the time and this doesn't set up for it. So I'm going to paraphrase Moses' life. Moses' life is divided into three forties. First 40, the second 40, and the third 40. The first 40 of Moses' life, Moses has a call in his life to be the deliverer for Israel. They're in bondage in Egypt, and God has this tremendous plan. Moses' mother and father at an early age begin to tell him who he is and what he's going to do. Moses is a privileged person with an incredible call in his life. And in fact, God's plan was that he was going to have Moses raised in Pharaoh's household to educate him and put him in the right place. So for the first 40 years of Moses' life, 
Moses spends his life in privilege. He is blessed. He has what no one else has, but he realizes that he's a Hebrew living as an Egyptian, and he sees all of his people being mistreated, knowing that he's called to deliver them. And part of the problem of a person that has power is, unless that power is submitted to God, you'll use that power your way and not God's way. I'm going to say it one more time. This is a lesson to be learned by every person in this church. God has a tremendous call on your life. God has planned before time for you to do great things. God wants to bless your life. But part of the problem is, unless you submit your life to God and you're led by the Holy Spirit, that power, will, you will use it for your benefit, not for God's benefit. Moses, at 40 years old, we read this story about Moses. Moses commits murder. Moses took God's plan into his own hands. His power was not submitted to God. Moses was not under authority. Moses was out of control. Out of control. So we read about Moses the very first time with this statement. Now, the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. The word meek is translated right across the board, gentle. They mean the exact same thing. Our problem is we live in a society that reads meek as weak. Meek doesn't mean, meek means humble. Meek means power that is under control. Moses was a person who pretty much could live controlling. Not a controller, but controlling. But Moses, man, at one time in his life, was not submitted to what God wants. And so he came across an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He knows he's the deliverer. And here's Moses' reaction to this situation right here. Many years later, he's in his 40th year, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people. They're the Hebrews. He saw how hard they were forced to work. They were slaves. Remember, he's living as an Egyptian. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And after looking in all directions, so in other words, he's checking to make sure that nobody's watching. But look at me real quick. Even when you think no one's watching, someone's always watching. God's always watching, but someone's always watching. When Moses was sure that no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian, and he hid the body in the sand. Look what happens. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. Look at the answer. The man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? He thought no one saw it. Then Moses was afraid, thinking everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian, the desert. And when Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well. A lot of really good things happened to Moses. Remember, Moses lived his life in three forties. The first 40, he grew up in privilege. But he grew up unsubmitted to what God wanted, and the power he had was out of control. 
The next 40 of his life, Moses spends in a desert. What do you think God's purpose was for Moses in the desert? Anybody? It was to teach Moses that the power he had, if he was going to be used by God, had to be put under God's control and not Moses' control. His first 40 years, he was out of control. His second 40 years, he learned to come under authority. A really cool scripture. And if you're a studier of the word and you want to learn something about how God does things and what happened to Moses, during this 40 years in the desert, this scripture is said about Moses multiple times. I counted at least eight times I could read these exact words, and this is what it says. While Moses was being humbled in the desert, it says this, Moses followed the Lord's, say the word, instructions. instructions. One more time. Moses followed the Lord's instructions. Over and over and over again, while Moses is in the desert, the Bible will say, Whatever God told Moses to do, he did. Moses followed all of the words of God. Whatever God instructed Moses to do, he did. His first 40 years, he knew he had a call, but he did his own thing and it was out of control. His second 40 years, God used a desert to humble Moses. Look at me real quick. His third 40 years, Moses became the deliverer of Israel, didn't he? Moses led the children of Israel, from Egypt to the promised land. Does anybody remember how long it took them to make that journey? 40 years. Do you know as the crow flies, as they walked, if they had taken a direct route, it should have taken them two weeks to go from Egypt to the promised land. Why in the world would it take 40 years? He lived his life in three 40s. The first 40 for himself. The second 40 being humbled. The third 40 was to do and fulfill everything God had told him to do. I want to throw this out to you prophetically so that you might understand where you are in space and time. I heard a guy teach on communion years and years and years ago. Whenever Jesus gets bread in his hand, he does three things with it. Listen to this analogy. The first things that he does, he breaks the bread. Have you ever read that? He gets the bread in his hand and he breaks it. The second thing that he does is he blesses it. And then the third thing that he does is he gives it away. And in the giving away is multiplication. Look at me. Our lives are represented in that. There's a time in our life where God blesses us, yes or no? There's a time in our life where God humbles us, yes or no? And the humbling is for this person, for this reason, so that he can give away who we are and what we've learned and what we've done so that the multiplication can happen. And here's where you are, I bet, in space and time in this church today. I bet some of you are at a place right now where you're being blessed like crazy, but you're doing your own thing. You see, your blessing is your hand. You see your blessing because you're smart. You see your blessing because you're in the right place at the right time. And I want to tell you something. It's God's will and it's God's design to bless you. But God wants you to be a person who can be used by him. And most people, what they do when they have blessing, they act like they deserve it. They see it as, I'm smarter, better, (laughs) 
deserving of. And it causes a person in that place to abuse their power. And while it's God's design and God wants to bless your life and God, man, from the beginning of time, God has things prepared for you. You have no idea how much he wants to bless you. But because he loves you so much, part of your life will be spent in blessing. And some of you right now find yourself in a desert. And you think to yourself, I've done something terribly wrong. God's left me. He's deserted me. I must have sinned. What happened to me? Why is it like this? Can I just tell you the truth? It's all part of God's purpose to get you to a place where the power and the humility can come together so that when you do what you're supposed to do, you can actually do it to be a blessing to everybody around you. Some of you are in the third part of life right now. Where you've gone through blessing and you've gone through humility, but you're about to enter the season now where God wants to use you in a tremendous way. And the most important lesson you can learn is that that power that you have is under control and authority so that God can do great things with you. I just think it's prophetic. If you want the three fill in the blanks, Moses' first 40, he was just simply out of control. His second 40, he was under authority because he'd do what God told him to do. The third one just simply is this. The third place is the best place to be. Most of us would say the best place to be is when you're being blessed by God. I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't think that's the best place to be. Some will say then, well, humility can't be the best place. Actually, it is a pretty good place because it does a lot for you. But you want to know the best place? The best place is after you go through the first and the second. It's to be in a position where God can use you really powerfully. Because here's the fill in the blank. Moses' life, the last 40 years were beyond belief. Let me show you a scripture about Moses that I think is so cool. Inside the tent of meeting, look at this. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to his friend. Look at me real fast. How many of you ever pray the prayer, God, I want to hear your voice? God, I want you to speak to me. God, I want to know if this is the right way, the wrong way. God, I want you to talk to me. You ever prayed that prayer right there? You ever wonder why you're not hearing? No, be honest with me. Do you ever want to know why you're not hearing? I want to give you one of the indications why. Dude, until you come into a place in your life where what he's given you is fully submitted to him, he can't talk to you because you won't listen. You won't hear it. And if you do, you won't obey it. The very thing that Moses had the first 40 years, God, he lived like a prince. The second 40 years, it humbled him so that whatever God told him to do, he would say yes to. And the third was when he was finally out of place, John, to move into the realm, to be given away to all the people. God's purpose for Moses' life was not to make him rich just for himself or to make him famous just for himself. Whatever God does in our life, he does it so that it blesses people around us, yes or no. This idea of gentleness, man, power under control is so crucial to the body of Christ today. What if the church could learn, instead of picking up a picket sign or a sword, what if we could learn to be people who were so sure about what we believed, but we learned how to balance it with words that could cause people to want it rather than to repel from it? Do you know that Proverbs says, 
Pleasant words promote instruction. And you know what most believers think today? The louder I yell at you, the more you'll hear. And I just want to ask you this question. When people are yelling at you, how much do you want to do what they tell you to do? If my uncle would have blown up at me in that car, my life would have gone 180 from where it did. Let me just give you these scriptures real quickly. It's not exhaustive. It's not full. I just want to show them to you. It's all over the Bible. This principle is all over the Bible, and most believers are so unaware of it. Let, let me just, there's only, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's eight scriptures. I'll read them real quick. The first one is Colossians 3.12. Look at this. Therefore, as God's chosen people, so he's talking to believers, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, and... So gentleness is a cloak that we choose to put on, yes or no? Gentleness is not something... God does not come by like a fairy godfather and boink you on the head. Oh, now you're gentle. Don't you wish it was that? Don't you wish money worked this way? That you, When you leave today, you were to open your truck and it's just filled with money because you went to church. Don't you wish it worked that way? So we laugh about that, but that's how we think the Holy Spirit does things in our life. Okay, I heard it and God's just going to do it. You make choices. You put on gentleness. You know the thing about power? If you have to tell somebody you have power... You haven't learned a lesson. When you have power and you don't destroy somebody, and you could, and you don't say a word about it, that's control. That's control. How about this one? Philippians 4, 5. Let your be evident to all the Lord is near. He's talking to believers. How about this one right here? Proverbs 15, 1. A Earner uh, answer turns away wrath, but hard words stir up anger. Anybody in this room been married more than six months? <laughs> Is that true? Yes or no? A gentle answer. So let me ask you a question. How hard is it to give a gentle answer? Dude, something in us wants to prove we're right. That's flesh, man. How about this? James, the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving at all times. Oh, my goodness. Why do they write it like that? <laughs> now be serious with me for a minute. How many of you read the Bible to do it? Three of us. It's really powerful. How many of you read the Bible to do it? I read it to do it. I read it because I think that by doing it, man, it honors God. There's wisdom in it. There's blessing in it. But the wisdom from above, first of all, is pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It doesn't say that you're wrong. It just says that you make a choice. How about this one right here? It is full of mercy. I'm sorry, this, this Second Timothy. A servant, no, back up. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be to all. To all. Don't you wish it said to some? 
Serious. Don't you wish it said to the ones who are nice to you or to your family or to your friends? Gentle to all. Uh, Galatians, brethren. So he's talking to believers. Brethren, brothers. If a man is overtaken in any sin, you who are spiritual or mature, restore such a one in a spirit of? I just have a question for you. You realize sometimes the church does its worst work dealing with people who have fallen into sin. Do you know what the Bible says? When we find a person in our body that's fallen into sin, that the way we're supposed to reach them is to be gentle to them. Gentle to them. Do you know that the Bible says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance, not the hardness of the Lord or the judgment of the Lord or the fear of the Lord. The kindness of the Lord brings you to repentance. Here's Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you're a believer, I realize not everybody in the room is, but if you're a believer, Jesus is the model by which we want to live our lives, yes or no. And here's what Jesus is telling us. Come unto me, because the way of restoration is through my gentleness. And if we're supposed to be like him, that's what we're supposed to by the way, Jesus had the guts, the courage, and the backbone to go to the cross without stopping. When he went into the temple to clear it out of the money changers and the people who turned the Father's house into everything but what it was supposed to be, Jesus wasn't a wuss. Forgive me, he, but he wasn't. But God, he could keep it under control, couldn't he? This is Timothy. But you, man of God... Flee from all of this, pursue righteousness, godless, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and pursue. Hmm. Is that the last one? I think that's it. The only reason I just show this to you is, um, I'm going to ask you one more time. Other than this message, when's the last time you heard somebody teach on gentleness? And then, and then I would just ask this. Everybody here this morning wants to live... The blessed life, the sweet life. We want that, right? This is a key to the sweet life. It's a missing element in our life. When we're not gentle the way that God, not a milk toast, not a wuss, not a wimp, not a just whatever happens, happens. A person who has a backbone like steel but knows how to deal with people. That person, man, they're living the sweet life. What do we do with a message like this? You know, the worst thing, the worst thing you can do is go home and try to be gentle. Because <laughs> you'll find a thousand reasons today why you can't. This is a work of yielding to the Holy Spirit in our lives. Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, do this in me. Holy Spirit, this is so crucial. You know the problem with this message is? We are only scratching the surface of what this is supposed to look like. But I am absolutely, I'm 100% convinced that the sweet life lies in these nine things going on in our lives. Gentle. Gentle. Father.
I want to thank you for being gentle with us. Folks, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Aren't you glad that God never loses it with us in the middle of our mistakes and our sin and our silliness, our misunderstanding? Aren't you glad that God treats us gently? He doesn't compromise the truth. He never changes it. He'll tell us right up front, here's blessing, here's cursing, choose blessing. But even when we make the mistake or we're not sure, God's never not gentle with us. We're most like our Father when we do what our Father does. JFC, this year, you know where I want to grow in my life? I want to grow in the sweet life. I want to have more love. And I want to have more joy. And I want to have more peace. I want to have more kindness and more gentleness. More self-control. I want to be patient. I want these things in my life and I need God to do this in me. And if you're like me today, man, you find yourself with that great dilemma of God. Boy, I'd like to see these things happen, but I really... My flesh can't get it done. God, would you help me? The answer is always a resounding yes. I'll pray for these three things and then let you go. If you're in that great time in your life where everything's just simply being blessed, enjoy it, love it, embrace it. But remember, God didn't bless you just to bless you. You're a blessing to bless others. Life's a bit cyclical. Sometimes we're being blessed like crazy and sometimes we're walking through a time of humility. It's to get us to see things, to become obedient, to do what God tells us to do so that he can use us. But remember the purpose all together, the blessing, the teaching, the humility, it all comes together So that God can use you to fulfill the purpose that he has for you. Wherever you are in space and time, don't despise it. Don't reject it. Don't let the devil lie to you and tell you, you're just out here and God's forgotten about you. God knows exactly what he's doing. And if you've ever prayed the prayer, God, use me. God, use me. Then really what you did was give him permission to bring you to the place where you're not out of control but under authority so that it's beyond belief. I believe that with everything that's in me. May the Lord give us grace and mercy and help us today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to me.